www.wpfw.org. Welcome back to Shea Wanana Radio. My name is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, your regular host for the show, Professor Zane Elamin uh, is on assignment today, so I'll be your guest host. I am a trauma surgeon from Baltimore and an ambassador of the Baltimore Ceasefire Movement. I run a podcast from Baltimore on surgery, violence, and culture called The Knife at the Gunfight, and uh, it's an honor for me to guest host today because I've known Zane since I was a freshman at the University of Maryland, and he was uh, one of the most active people uh, in the D.C. area against the Iraq War at the time, as well as against the prison industrial complex. I consider him one of my mentors, so it's a great honor today. Uh, but this is a show about Middle East politics and culture, so we're going to feature a interview with Dr. Alice Rothschild, uh, an American OBGYN uh, with a lot of experience with solidarity work in uh, Israel and Palestine, particularly in Gaza. And hopefully we'll get caught up uh, with our previous guest host, Gorov Madan, on what's been going on locally with uh, the immigrant community and the ICE federal government agency. So, as Gorov would say, let's get it. <laughs> البيت الأبيض محلي عم بيعتم العالم عم بيغطي بغيم الأسود طيارات صلبية صهيونية مهيمنة على العالم شبح الإمبريالية كوش مخفية بقناع العدل والديمقراطية جاك تدخل فيك وفي جاك تدخل فيي اي عم بحكي هاي الشخصيات ان البشر جواتها مات مثلاً بوش يراقوا فعنام مبلير عم اللي فيها فلوسيك العالم جايين نظم السير نظام كابيتاليزم إمبرياليزم اختصاب الغير اي I'm here with Alice uh, Rothschild Alice how are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. Or I'm not so fine, given the news. But <laughs> yeah, so as we're recording, I mean, I'm not even sure what you're referring to. There's so much news. But as we're recording, there was news of a mass shooting just down the road from me in Annapolis. They're mostly going to another hospital, not my hospital, so I'm still available. But that's on top of everything else that's going on. But uh, trying to stay focused, um, Dr. Rothschild, perhaps I should say, until we get on a first-name basis, you know, uh, just to give my audience a sense, you're someone with uh, an American with a lot of experience in Israel and Palestine and working on issues of peace. So uh, just to kind of frame how you got that, I'd like to hear a little bit about your background uh, growing up and your medical background and what sort of got you to start working on peace in the Holy Land. Sure. So I started out as, you know, a nice Jewish girl growing up in a small town outside of Boston, uh, my parents were first generation, you know, their parents were immigrants from Eastern Europe. And, you know, I went to Hebrew school, we made our pilgrimage to Israel when I was 14, you know, and thought it was rising from the ashes of the Holocaust. And that was sort of the Israel that I knew. Um, I then became an older person and was in college during the 60s, and really became a much more politically conscious person in terms of trying to think about how the world works uh, imperialism, colonialism, racism, all those kinds of things. And I realized over the years that 
uh, I had this childhood love of Israel and you know, pride in being Jewish and that that was all intermixed. And then I had my adult political self and I really was unable to get the two of them to talk to each other. And for years, like many uh, folks who are Jewish in the United States, you know, anytime you brought up any of those things, everybody would start screaming at each other. So there was no incentive to try to grapple with this. But finally, I found a group of similarly like-minded people who were also struggling with this issue. And we began to, uh, we started a, a dialogue group with Palestinians and other Arabs and lefty Israelis. And suddenly this whole world opened up to me that a lot of history, a lot of personal narrative that I had, had no uh, awareness of. So then I got very taken with what I was learning and really wanted to understand. And um, so I was involved in starting some local grassroots uh, kind of organizations for education and uh, on the topic and trying to explore the Palestinian narrative and experience and all that kind of stuff. And um, what we found is that we were very quickly uh, blacklisted in our communities and it was very hard to have an event, for instance. So um, a group of us who were physicians, I'm an OBGYN, uh, decided we would try to examine this through the lens of healthcare and human rights. So in 2003, a group of us started an annual delegation, health and human rights delegation to Israel and the West Bank, Gaza, East Jerusalem, and really started for forming uh, attachments to people and organizations and working in clinics and that kind of thing. And that gave me a much greater understanding of the region, and it's just gone from there. So, you know, I have a, a couple of questions about that. You're starting to explain your early work, but how was that time different than what's going on now, both in terms of on the ground and your interactions with communities here in the United States? Well, first of all, I think things are much, much worse. There's also an increased awareness. So, you know, just to give you an example, when we started our first uh, visions of peace with justice in Israel-Palestine, we spent a year debating whether we could use the word Palestine in the title of our group. Hmm. I think we're way beyond that level of discourse in most communities. You know, Jimmy Carter has used the word apartheid. I mean, the discourse is much wider. The availability of books and films and discussion groups and all that kind of stuff has, has really exploded in the United States and, and internationally. Uh, the other thing that's happened is that there is um, the boycott divestment sanction movement that came out of Palestine that has really awakened people to the intersectional issues uh, in this region and the parallels between you know, apartheid South Africa, which is a different kind of apartheid, and what's going on in hmm. uh, Israel-Palestine. So th the conversation is very different, the awareness is very different, but the of reaction, the terrible leadership, you know, a lot of things uh, continue. And I think particularly in Gaza, the level of humanitarian desperation mm -hmm. is just over the top. And uh, so you were talking about doing sort of health solidarity work in Gaza. What was your experience with the health infrastructure there and, and how has that changed in the last, you know, 15 years? So um, the health infrastructure in uh, Gaza, as well as the West Bank, um, consists of four compartments. One is the United Nations, which deals with uh, the refugees. Uh, there's a small private sector. Uh, there is the Ministry of Health. And uh, there are NGOs. And NGOs provide a lot of the non-refugee health care. Uh, in Gaza, the prob there are several problems. One is uh, the lack of funding, and this is true of all the sectors. Uh, another is the inability to get medication and equipment and personnel into the region uh, because of the blockade so that, you know, hospitals are lacking uh, large numbers of essential drugs, 
it's you know people are doing without a lot um and then the uh, doctors and clinicians and psychologists and people like that you know they can't get out of the strip to go to an international conference or to upgrade their information or all the things that we do to stay current can't happen because they can't leave uh, or it's very difficult to leave so the health system is struggling uh there are people that are totally dedicated. Uh, the equipment is frequently out of date. The practices are often, particularly in OBGYN, I found very sort of 1950s style OBGYN. And the population is, is, uh, more, uh, stressed. And so it's a, it's a, it's at the catastrophic level. And, uh-huh. you know, you throw in three major wars and multiple incursions and the recent shootings, uh, that went on that are, are ongoing around the March of Return. Uh, this is an incredibly stressed population. So even if you look at something like uh, rehabilitation from injury, I mean, if you only have electricity two to four hours a day, you, know, you can't have an electric wheelchair. You, you don't have an elevator. Uh, you can't refrigerate your medications. I mean, we're talking like basic stuff here. You know, the streets frequently have been bombed and covered over and, you know, they're not easy to navigate when you have two feet. Uh, if you don't have two feet, it's even more challenging. So the challenges are just uh, enormous. Right. And, you know, being a, um, a, you know, a trauma surgeon in seeing the news, you know, in, in a short amount of time, seeing dozens of people killed, hundreds of people shot, I couldn't imagine how that would stress, you know, the health infrastructure in Baltimore, let alone oh, absolutely, a, yeah. a place like Gaza. So I can't imagine what those uh, surgeons and nurses and paraprofessionals are dealing with. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. why I, I think you make a good point, even those who survive it don't have the resources to have appropriate rehabilitation, it sounds like, or the ability to move around. Right. And they're, they're trying, but they, there isn't the availability. Uh, if you read the work of Mads Gilbert, he's a Norwegian uh, surgeon who has been working in Gaza periodically in trauma and in, you know, during times of war. Mm-hmm. It's very graphic what he describes and it's just breathtakingly bad um, in terms of the need and the availability of personnel who are working, you know, hundreds of hours to provide services and then they don't have, right. you know, anesthesia, or they don't have sutures, or they don't have basic things. And um, the other thing is that the uh, Israeli Defense Force has been using weaponry that is very destructive to human limbs. So there's always some new uh, kind of weaponry that has to be figured out and dealt with and causes new levels of trauma um, that are an added challenge. Yeah, wow. So, and in our conversation previously, you were talking about some of your solidarity you've worked that you've done around mental health. And I think that ties into the same experiences and history of trauma. Right. And I'd like to, I'd like to hear more about kind of how you came into that uh, work, what your motivations were, and what that work looked like. Sure. I mean, I had always planned to be a psychiatrist, and huh. somewhere in medical school, I ran into a whole lot of psychiatrists that were very uh, sort of Freudian and sexist, and I thought, oh, God, I can't do that. <laughs> you know, what What should a woman in the 70s be? And I thought, OBGYN, that's what I should do, because... Um, safe bet. Well, it wasn't a safe bet. It was an all-male specialty. It was a surgical subspecialty, huh. and so going into it was like breaking the walls. Uh, it's not like it is today. So that was my, you know, striving off to fight the battle. And it, it didn't change my interest in how people's emotions and brains work and trauma and all the things that go into how people function. And I also really have found 
that a patient's physical well-being is very dependent on their emotional well-being and their societal well-being. Of course. So I, I don't think it's uh, that uh, strange. Um, and so what I, I did in uh, Gaza, I've been, uh, I was recent, I've been there three times, and in uh, 2015 and 2017, I uh, worked with several women's clinics where I did what we called women's empowerment workshops. And basically, I met with groups of women to talk. And, you know, the, the, the field was wide open. They could talk about whatever they wanted. Um, and we tried to sort of focus on healthcare, but it was a loose definition of healthcare. And so right after the 2014 war, um, what the women did from women that I, uh, worked with, they just needed to talk about the war. And, you know, I mean, they're talking about, you know, bombs raining down and grabbing their children and seeing their children blown up and running through streets of blood. And I mean, just like breathtakingly terrible things. It's more like a, a group therapy uh, kind of setting uh, with a focus on their personal trauma and how they were going to try to survive this trauma. And um, when I came back in 2017, that was in the background because people, some people still didn't have housing or they'd lost four of their children or their husband was dead. Or, you know, I mean, everybody had something uh, that was a wound, um, mm. but people were much more able to talk about much more traditional things that women talk about, you know, their periods, infertility, sex, uh, you know, all the things that people do. Uh, we had um, some very interesting conversations around rape um, and around uh, societal norms. And, you know, some of the women who particularly lived in the, the southern part of Gaza were in a much more reactionary society than people in other places. And so we had a, a much more nuanced discussion about the way that their uh, the political system relates to their personal lives and the ways that some of, I mean that some of the women had issues around you know divorce and losing their kids and that kind of stuff so I, I got a real glimpse into what life is like on, on many levels people were able to talk about uh, you know ongoing medical issues uh, childbirth issues uh, what child care what childbirth is like in the Gazan hospitals you know that kind of thing so it, it was a really uh, wild experience I do have um I did publish a book called Condition Critical, Life and Death in Israel-Palestine, where I um, included uh, a lot of my blogging from Gaza um, around these issues. I also, on my website, have all my blogs for the last couple of years. If people want to have a you know, day-by-day in-depth look at what it's like to meet women you know, around a table and just talk, and it's pretty amazing. And the other thing that's amazing is the immense strength of these women, because uh, the fact that they get up in the morning and get their children off to school and, you know, <laughs> find food and do all that stuff is really uh, pretty impressive. Well, and we'll definitely have to link to that and make that uh, available to our listeners. Um, and I think you're, you're getting at two things that I'm very curious about. One is that you've described, you know, your experiences there um, and, and what you witnessed. Another part is what happens when you take this back to, you know, our communities? You talked about how difficult it was mm -hmm. originally just to use the word Palestine. But I found in conversations with, you know, physicians, really intelligent people who are dedicated to taking care of others, uh, you know, when a, a people are shot by the Israeli military in Gaza, you know, a 20-year-old, you know, young nurse, mm -hmm. they have a hard time seeing a human. All they see is Hamas. Has that been your experience, or have you found ways of speaking through that? What has it been like to bring these experiences back to the American Jewish community? It's been highly variable. I think that most uh, of the American Jewish community would respond, as you said, that they don't see a young woman who's trying to help people who are being shot. They see Hamas, and Hamas is evil, and Hamas is the new Nazi. You know, and that's sort of the framing in which this all happens. 
But there, the thing that I find really interesting is that the Jewish community is not monolithic. Of course. And that particularly um, the younger generation is much, much more open to uh, hearing the different narratives and seeing Palestinians as fellow human beings who are suffering from uh, occupation or siege and previously colonialism and you know all the things that are actually going on. And so I find much more openness in the younger communities in groups like Jewish Voice for Peace. And so that is a hopeful thing for me. And in the medical community, it's been very interesting because it's very, you know, it's almost as hard for me to get a gig in a hospital as a temple, you know. Uh-huh. Um, but when I have, it, you know, there's been all the tension about, oh, she's going to talk about Palestine. But then I've actually been pretty well received. Now, I've also given talks where people are yelling at me, you know. So, uh, but in a medical community, people, you know, if you're giving grand rounds, they're going to be more civilized, although they may be squirming. So I think the problem is that if you start challenging people's framing and their perceptions of the other, then they have to look at the whole picture. You know, it's like once you admit that this 21-year-old nurse is a human being and not an enemy, then you have to ask, well, why are they shooting the people around her? Why did she get shot? Why, you know, and then you start taking off the layers and that, and then you have to say, well, why is this happening? The person who lived there and what's a refugee? And, you know, and it just grows and grows and grows. So I think part of the difficulty people, not only Jewish community, but a lot of Christian communities and have is that it then makes you go to a very painful place and no one wants to go there. So it's, it's tough and you have to sort of nibble, nibble, nibble away. I find that the, for me, the most effective tactic is to tell personal stories because First off, if I tell a personal story, then they can't challenge the reality of that personal story. That is the personal story. And then they have to deal with it. And that's that's a way to kind of break through the armor of framing that we're all we all live in. And I think that, that is a very powerful method. And I, I made um, a documentary film called Voices Across the Divide, actually available on Vimeo as well as on the website for purchase. And um the uh, what I did was I told the history of the region through the voices of Palestinians who are living in the United States. So, you know, someone who lived through 1948 told the story of what it was like. And you know, so it becomes the personal story becomes very powerful. So that's one of the ways, I think, to get around the difficulties people have when they've already decided that someone is the enemy or less than human or whatever. And and it's always shocking to me to see people who are very sympathetic to other types of others, but not to Palestinians, you know, they're sort of in the, in the enemy camp and, and that's very troublesome. Yeah. And I, I, I hear what you're saying. It can be very difficult for someone to challenge their cognitive dissonance. And I guess that's what you're asking people to do. Yeah. So you have to do it firmly, but gently. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I'm curious how, as you know, you told me you've been on the TV in Israel several times. Yeah. How have your interactions with Israelis compared to American Jewish communities? Well, um, I haven't had a huge amount of interactions with Israelis. Um, I have interactions with sort of the leftist community or the, you know, like people who are in Physicians for Human Rights Israel or people involved with Stop the Wall or, you know, there are various organizations I work with that I know people in those organizations and have friends. Um, right. You know, mainstream Israelis, I don't get to talk with them. Um, and, you know, the thing that mm. I find interesting is when I was, I was on Israeli TV twice. And that was the only time in my life that I got death threats through Facebook. So I think there's a whole sort of the center to right wing element of Israelis that really would not like me at all because I'm challenging 
what they're doing and I'm challenging the framing and the country has moved to the, the right in a very disturbing way. And, um, you know, those folks don't welcome some like privileged white Jewish lady coming to look at what's going on and make comments and visit villages and, you know, the West Bank and challenge what the narrative is. So I don't, wouldn't expect them to be that friendly, you know. Wow. And uh, getting back to the mental health work that you were talking about, is that ongoing? And, uh, you know, what is the mission or the vision for that? For me, you mean personally? Uh, you're part of, a, of an organization, yeah? What's, yeah. Uh, what's the, the mission or the vision for that and is the work ongoing? So I was on, I was doing this through delegation work. So you come, you stay for a week, 10 days, two weeks, whatever, three weeks. Um, and at this point, you know, in, in Gaza, for instance, there's an extraordinary organization called the Gaza Community Mental Health Program, mm-hmm. which provides uh, therapy and teaching um, for psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers, and they provide, you know, the bulk of the mental health care in Gaza. But, you know, you're looking at two million people, uh, you know, half of the population is under 18. Almost all the kids have PTSD. I mean, you know, it's right. need is overwhelming. Um, I don't know whether I could get back into Israel because uh, at this point they are deporting people who are involved with the boycott divestment sanction movement. Um, so, you know, I'm certainly going to try because I have every right to go there. Uh, but I don't know whether I will get through the airport. And so I just have to get myself together to <laughs> to do that. Um I don't have a, a plan currently, but it's on my list of things to do. All right. And mostly I'm doing a lot of writing and blogging and I just wrote a children's book and you know, I'm doing work in my own community. Well, that's exciting. Um, but speaking of writing, you told me some of your other solidarity work has to do with working with uh, students of English literature in Gaza. Right, um, right. I'm curious to hear what that experience has been like and uh, what the content of that writing has been like. So, um, I'm involved with a group called We Are Not Numbers. People can check out the website. And this is a group of uh, young Palestinians who many of them have majored in English literature, which, believe it or not, is a very popular major in Gaza and in the West Bank. And uh, basically, they want to be better writers. Uh, they want to be journalists. They want to be able to tell the story of Gaza to uh, the English-speaking world. So... Uh, People who are English-speaking writers get mentored, get uh, signed up to mentor with a student in Gaza. And basically, they write essays and, you know, for instance, my students, I reviewed them, I critiqued them. I'm trying to get, you know, the grammar right and the punctuation and also trying to help students be able to talk about what they want to talk about and, um, you know, share their personal experiences or share their narrative or whatever it is they want to do. So it's been a very intense and kind of moving experience. They also do videos. Uh, There's some very powerful videos on the website. Um, But their main goal is to be uh, the voice of youth in Gaza. And so, you know, people write about all different things. Some people write these incredibly powerful, painful stories about personal experiences. Some people you know, do some fiction that's sort of a fictionalized version of what happened to them in whatever war or whatever trauma, whatever. Some people write about, you know, just family dynamics and stuff that's going on, like people everywhere have family dynamics. Or they write about um, places in Gaza that, you know, are historical. Or, you know, there's a huge range because they can write whatever whatever moves them. Um, but the main thing is to write it powerfully in good English uh, and get it to a place where it can be put on the website. Um, 
you know, we're, we're actually working on um, compiling some of these stories into some books. I've just heard we might have a German publisher who's interested, which wow. is funny because we've just gotten it into good English and it'll have to be translated. But, you know, <laughs> we're working on getting this stuff out into the world. And, you know, um, I think it's a very important voice. And I really do, you know, want people to go to the website and see what the students have done. Um, but, you know, it's also hard. I mean, we're trying to, I'm trying to Skype with a woman and she has electricity four hours a day and she lives, you know, with her eight siblings and, you know, for her to find privacy internet and me and her in the same time zone, you know, we could spend two weeks trying to get to that place and then to be able to have some introspection and thought and, you know, it's tough. Sure. Well, you know, you're, uh, you're talking to a surgeon and, uh, Zain Alameen, uh, the host of a Shea Wanana uh, that we're covering for is an engineer who's also a literature pr uh, professor. So we have a lot of resources. What uh, what are the needs that we can extend our resources in solidarity? What are ways that we can mm -hmm. um, help uh, Gazans overcome the trauma that they're living through? Well, I think the first thing is people need to be educated about what the trauma is. So people need to, if they really want to know what's happening, they have to read, you know, Mandawais and Al Jazeera and Electronic Intifada, you know, just check it every now and then and you will find out a lot more about what's going on. Um, I think it's important for us to broaden our own community conversations about this so that, um, you know, mentioning the word Gaza doesn't, you know, completely make everybody start yelling at you. Uh, so this is a personal responsibility to get educated enough and then to move forward to be able to have that conversation with your peers. And that takes a lot of creativity. There are a lot of good films that people could show. There are a lot of books that have been written. I mean, there's just the resources out there that people could take make use of. In terms of support, um, it is very hard to get into Gaza. Uh, it requires getting special permitting mm -hmm. and, you know, most of the time you don't get it and sometimes they tell you the day before you're supposed to go in and it's a whole dance to actually get a permit to get in. Um, so I think one of the things to do is to support organizations that are in there. So, for instance, you know, I know that UNRWA, which is the UN uh, group that uh, provides health care and education, um, is losing its funding thanks to Trump and other forces. And you know, these folks provide the health care to refugees and, to, and the educational system. So people want to raise money for UNRWA. They want to raise money for the Gaza Community Mental Health Program. There's a, a foundation that I'm actually on the board of uh, called the Gaza Mental Health Foundation, which raises money for the um, mental health group in Gaza and also for the Middle East Children's Alliance, which um, does work in Gaza. You could give directly to the Middle East Children's Alliance. Uh, you know, there, there are groups like that that are desperate for funding. Uh, you could support We Are Not Numbers. Uh, that's a group where, you know, someone gives $1,000. It totally changes people's lives. So, yeah, the UNRWA donation is just the drop-in-the-bucket donation. The We Are Not Numbers donation is a dramatic improvement. There are ways to financially support as well. And, you know, if you are a healthcare provider and you're interested in working to figure out who's able to get in, and that's really hard to do at this point, but there are delegations that go. Um, until recently, there was a delegation from Physicians for Social Responsibility Washington that went almost every year this year for the first time they didn't get in. Who knows if that was just temporary or permanent. Um, you know, we when we started doing this work, we coalitioned with uh, Physicians for Human Rights Israel and Palestinian Medical Relief Society, so they might be able to help people get in, but it, it's... Well, if you need more help uh, from an English literature uh, professor, let us know and we'll, uh, we'll lobby Zane to, uh, to extend. Oh, we're always, we're always looking for help. <laughs> always looking. All right. So, Z Zane, if you're listening, they're calling on you. Um, 
But anything else from your work in Gaza or, or in your com- communities that uh, we haven't touched on that you think would be important to highlight? JVP Boston has a film library that they will uh, share films with for no cost that you can like show with to a group of friends or to a community group. So if you just go to JVP Boston and go to their film library, you will have access to all these amazing films. And uh, I think that's another resource. You know, what I always tell boycott movement is, you know, when Palestinians struggle against occupation violently condemned, and now they're struggling against it nonviolently and they're totally condemned. So that's not like a good option. <laughs> so I think we need to support nonviolent struggle. And that's what the boycott movement is about. You can look at Israeli products. You can ask like your friends not to buy Israeli wine. And then they'll say why. And you'll say, well, the vineyards are often in the West Bank. And then they ask, why are they in the West Bank? Well, there are settlements in the West Bank and there are industries in the West Bank. You know, it opens the conversation and it also makes people have a heightened awareness. You're not going to take down the Israeli wine industry, but you're going to remind people that there is an occupation and that land that's Palestinian land is being taken for Jewish settlement, which I think is, you know, the fundamental issue here. Well, uh, I appreciate uh, you've given us a lot of resources. I feel like if I tweeted out a, a link a day that you suggested, I'd be busy until I recorded my next show. But uh, I have one more thing, one more link, please. which is Just World Educational. Uh, Just World uh, is a publishing company that published my last two books. And there's an educational um uh, organization that has grown out of the publishing company uh, called Just World Educational, and that's another link. <laughs> wow. One thing that I've been thinking about doing for a long time and haven't done is to reach out for Jewish Voices for Peace and be more active in uh, the local group here. And uh, hearing the work that you've been doing and the support that they've been giving has sort of uh, re-energized that uh, thought. Oh, good. So uh, I appreciate that. There's a lot to do. <laughs> and, you know, lastly, whenever I interview someone, I like to get... Uh, a recommendation, a cultural recommendation, um, what, you know, a book, music, movie, uh, sure. or a work of art or performance, and you can give more than one if you'd like. Okay, well, um, I think if, you know, there are, one of the wonderful things is there have been so many books that have been written in the last 20 years on this topic. I think if people were going to read one book and trying to understand Palestinian life, I'd read uh, Mornings in Janine uh, by Susan Abuhara. Uh, A-B-U-L-H-A-W-A. Um, it's a very wonderful book. There's also um, a wonderful graphic artist named Mohammed Sabana, S-A-B-A-A-N-E-H, and he wrote a book called White and Black. It's a, a book of political cartoons which uh, powerfully uh, describes the situation. So those are two very interesting books amongst a lot of interesting books. And, you know, if you're looking for a good movie, I would think um, uh, Slingshot Hip Hop is a wonderful movie about... Yes. Uh, Palestinian hip hop group. Um, I'm looking at. I co-signed that 100%. Oh, oh, great. Okay, and I'm looking at my list of movies here. Uh, and Counterpoint is a very good beginner movie for people just trying to struggle with the human side of it. Um, Five Broken Cameras, very important movie about a uh, village in Berlin. I know this village. I know the people who made this movie. Um, and this guy had started filming he actually got this camera for his when his kid was born to take pictures of the kid and then he just started filming life in this village and you know every once in a while the israelis would shoot out his camera and he would get another one which is why it's called five broken cameras i think if you want a um a film about what's going on in terms of israelis agonizing over the situation the gatekeepers is one and the other one is the law in these parts two very interesting documentaries there's just a lot out there i would i think i'll stop oh and then my movie (laughs) 
Voices Across the Divide is a very good sort of how to look at the history from another view told in its most personal way. If you're into gospel, MLK in Palestine is a wonderful film. It's about a an African-American gospel choir that goes to Palestine to sing in a play about Martin Luther King. And it's just a fascinating group. And I, I know that filmmaker as well. Anyway, I could go on and on, but I will stop. <laughs> wow. I usually give my own recommendations, but you've given more than enough for both of us. So I'll just reiterate uh, Slingshot, Slingshot Hip Hop is a yeah. lot of fun and a lot yeah. of great music in there. So definitely, uh, if you just want to watch one and not think too hard, that's the one. Yeah. But uh, it, it gives you a real sense of what's going on. Sure. It's, it's set, it's set in, uh, in, in Palestine, of course, and every, all the weight that that carries. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you so much for your time and, uh, and hopefully we'll be in touch and, and, uh, maybe I'll see you in uh, JVP one of these days. That'd be great. And I hope people feel activated and interested in working on all of this because it's very important. It's one of the core issues in our universe here. All right. Thanks so much. Okay. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. I'm here in the studio with uh, Gaurav Madan. Uh, you may remember he was our guest host uh, just a couple of weeks ago on Shaiwanana Radio, uh, talking about the effect of the new ICE policies on immigrant communities uh, in Maryland. So, uh, Gaurav, can you give us an update? What's been going on the last couple of weeks? Well, um, yeah, thanks for having me. And it's been a disturbing couple of weeks as we've seen the families who were horrifically separated at the border um, remain separated. And it's become, this is despite Trump's executive order, it's become increasingly clear that the administration has no actual plan on how to reunite these families. And there are even reports now that some parents have already been deported while their children have been sent to other parts of the country. This comes at a time where a couple weeks ago on June 30th, we saw hundreds of thousands of people across the country march against family separation at the border. Unfortunately, um, we know that the devastation of communities and separation of families is not limited to what's happening at the border. And right here in the D.C. area, immigrant communities are being torn apart at the hands of ICE, which we have discussed previously on the show. And, uh, you know, I saw on your social media, uh, you were putting out that on Monday, uh, networks uh, in the area uh, were doing accompanying work with uh, at least one uh, member of the immigrant community at the Baltimore ICE office. Can you give us an update? What happened at that check-in? Yeah, so um, as you know, I'm part of a group, a volunteer activist collective based in the D.C. area called Sanctuary DMV. And so Sanctuary DMV... Um, runs an accompaniment program where we accompany people who have to go and check in with ICE, and we've also taken up some public deportation defense programs. And so Sanctuary DMV, is, along with a number of our partners, were accompanying two people who had to check in with ICE, and we had a rally ahead of these two people's check-ins. And so um, the first individual was uh, Marta Rodriguez. She's a 53-year-old mother from Honduras who has actually been checking in with ICE for the past nine years. And so in March, when she went to her check-in, she was told by ICE agents that she is no longer welcome in this country and that she should show up at her following check-ins with a one-way ticket back to Honduras. Her next check-in was in May. And so we showed up over 100 deep outside the ICE office to sort of have a rally, a vigil in support of Marta um, and demanding that ICE not detain her. In May on that day, um, she was not detained. And usually, from my understanding, ICE gives people six months to a year to return, and they only gave her a two-month stay. And so that two months was up. 
just two days ago on Monday. And so we joined uh, Marta again. Um, and just to give you a little background about Marta's story, she's been in this country for over a decade. She has U.S. citizen children. Um, she has a work permit. She's a taxpayer. She's a homeowner. And, and I just share this to share Marta's story, but we also take the approach that, you know, regardless of anyone's background, they shouldn't be living under threat of deportation. They shouldn't be living under threat of being torn from their family and from from their community. Um, unfortunately, on Monday, Marta was detained um, and was taken into ICE custody. So what, what happens now? What can people do? Well, I think as a community, we all have a responsibility to look after one another. And so if people want to weigh in on Marta's case, one thing they can do is directly call the Baltimore ICE field office um, and ask them to release Marta immediately. They can also call Mar Marta senators. That's U.S. Senator, Maryland Senators Chris Van Hollen and Ben Cardin, as well as her representatives, Denny Hoyer, and ask them all to publicly demand ICE to release Marta now. And if you guys are hearing a little audio artifact, that's because Gorv is in here clapping out his point. <laughs> um, but uh, so are there other people that uh, in the community that are uh, in need of uh, the sort of, uh, you know, solidarity from their fellow community members right now? Sure. So yesterday, or uh, sorry, on Monday, we were also accompanying Nelson, Nelson Bahutu. We discussed Nelson's brother's case, Prince, on this show um, a few weeks ago. And Nelson... I mean, I won't go into Prince's entire case again, but he is currently being detained by ICE. He's being held in a Frederick County jail after ICE um, forcibly tried to deport him from a JFK airport. Unfortunately, you know, he was not deported. But Nelson is, his, is Prince's brother, and Nelson did go and check in with ICE. We were there to accompany him, um, and he was not detained, fortunately. However, you know, we still need community support to call for... Marta's release, for Prince's release, and for an end to ISIS policies that are targeting immigrant communities here in, here in the DMV. And what do you think is the importance or the effect of this local organizing? So I think, you know, you know as we talked about just a couple weeks ago, hundreds of thousands of people marched across the country um, demanding an end to family separation, demanding an end to ISIS policies. But it's important to continue that momentum and channel it and focus it here locally. Um, we need to be able to connect the dots and the rhetoric of what this administration is doing. And so that's connecting the dots of rhetoric that is supporting white supremacy, policies that support mass incarceration through private detention profiteering. And then this, what we're seeing today is this, this large mass deportation machine. And in, so in this area, in Maryland and in Virginia, you have local counties that have agreements with ICE. And that looks like what we have, 287G agreements. These are agreements that deputize local police officers to act as immigration enforcement officials. You have detention contracts with ICE. So local counties in both Maryland and Virginia are renting out bed space at local county jails to ICE to detain immigrants. Um, and people need to demand that their local counties and sheriffs and offices end that collaboration with ICE. All right. Well, I want to thank you, Gore, for stopping by. We we cut into the recorded episode a little bit because Gore was able to stop by in between uh, his other work obligations today. Um, but I wanted to make a couple of points real quick. One is that uh, Gore and I, we go back to to University of Maryland about the time when I met Zane as well. So and actually when I started That's right. before I started my podcast Gorov and I had sort of a planning meeting so I'm living out my dreams here right now uh holding down the radio show Right on. And the other thing is people may be I don't know if you're a little confused 
we're talking about Jewish solidarity with Palestine, and now we're talking about community solidarity with immigrant groups. But the the common theme here is community solidarity, cross-cultural solidarity, and I think that's what it's all about. So, Gaurav, thanks again for stopping in. Yeah, and, man, thanks for including me. And we'll get back to the program. Wow. So before we move on, I wanted to really point out something I think that is very important that Dr. Rothschild said, and that is the point that if we do not support nonviolent efforts led by Palestinians such as the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement that are pushing for recognition of human rights and work towards a peace with justice, then it leaves no path, no nonviolent path forward. That being said, the songs that you've heard so far today include two from the Slingshot Hip Hop soundtrack, one by Mahmoud Shalabi and the other by the Israeli-Palestinian group Dam. Now, since you got me here from Baltimore, before we wrapped up, I wanted to share two pieces with you. One is an essay that I wrote for the Baltimore Sun, and then we'll close out with a poem by one of the founding members of Ceasefire Baltimore, set to music by Judah Adashi. So even if you like Go-Go more than Baltimore Club, stay tuned and listen to this. I think you'll appreciate it. And if you like what you've heard, feel free to check out uh, my podcast, The Knife at the Gunfight, wherever you get yours. So thanks again for joining us. Hope to see you again next time. In the autumn of 2014, West Baltimore rapper Laura Scuda dropped the Bird Flu sports remix, celebrating the Orioles' playoff season and the 2013 Ravens' Super Bowl victory. The O's were having an unbelievable breakout season after a decade of perennial disappointment. The bullpen was unstoppable, starting pitching was consistent, manager Buck Showalter was inspiring greatness out of a motley roster of underappreciated players cobbled together by general manager Dan Duquette. Manny Machado was coming into his own as a superstar, and Adam Jones and Nick Marcakis delivered career-high performances. The Orioles would finish in first place in the American League East that year, and we all felt like a World Series run was an inevitable part of this new generation of Orioles magic. It was also the last year that Baltimore's annual murder total would hover around 200. It was still a dangerous city, but there was a sense maybe things were changing for the better. At that time, Scooter's ode to drug dealing, bird flu, about hustling a mix of scramble, coke, and smack, was doing well locally. He turned it into an innocent but sincere sports anthem that really saw the magic in that Orioles playoff run. Unfortunately, the Orioles season ended abruptly in the American League Championship Series after a loss to an equally strong Kansas City Royals team, who would ultimately lose the World Series to the San Francisco Giants. By the next spring, Freddie Gray would die in the custody of Baltimore police. In subsequent protests against the unnecessary death of Gray, Orioles fans drinking across the street from Camden Yards would engage these protesters with hostility. The chaos and divisions in the city would become all the more apparent not only in the rioting that followed, but in the skyrocketing murder rate, which rose to record levels, an annual total approaching 350 murders in a city of 620,000 people. 
In the aftermath, the Orioles would even play a game in front of zero fans in the stands as the city grappled with an out-of-control situation. Scooter, whose given name is Tyrese Trayvon Watson, will become active in efforts to end the violence. Ultimately, while leaving a Pray for Peace in These Streets charity basketball game at Morgan State University on June 25, 2016, the 23-year-old was ambushed and murdered in northeast Baltimore, apparently in retaliation for acts that he probably had nothing to do with. Scooter's ghost now haunts this city, one of almost 10,000 people murdered in Baltimore since I was born in 1982. The murder rate last year was the worst per capita in the city's history, but we are not giving up on Baltimore. The first Baltimore ceasefire was held in August 2017, and the fourth this past May. Another one is set for the weekend of August 3rd through the 5th, and the effort will mark the first anniversary of the Baltimore ceasefire movement with a concert on August 4th at 7 p.m. at Club Charm in Baltimore City. Ceasefire represents a conscious choice to chase away darkness with light and positive energy, to celebrate life even and especially when it feels like death surrounds us. We do this in part by embracing the artists in this city, working against violence like Scooter was. The creative culture in Baltimore is soaring. Rapper Young Moose is no longer terrorized by the Gun Trace Task Force. Detective Daniel Herschel has finally been prosecuted for his crimes. Photographer Devin Allen and writer Kantwani Fidel have found unprecedented success. Lawrence Brown, Dwight Watkins, and Aaron Mabin are ready to drop another book at any moment. T.T. the artist has achieved global fame, and her new movie on dance culture of Baltimore club music will be released to eager audiences. Today, the Orioles are in last place, however, having their worst season since 1988. The $160 million contract to secure Chris Davis as an Oriole has proved at least as disastrous as the trade for Glenn Davis. The bullpen is unreliable, starting pitching is atrocious, and Manny Machado is likely to be traded for players to be named later. However, in baseball, we know there's always next year. Scouting and drafting goes on, and the farm system continues its work. Adam Jones, who's known not only for his work in the outfield, but for community engagement with youth youth sports in the city, just bought Cal Ripken's former estate in the county in a symbolic move that suggests he wants to inherit Ripken's career-long role as Mr. Oriole. We have the same hopeful dreams for our city. The stakes are far higher, and the next year can seem a lifetime away. But we will not, and never will, give up on Baltimore. Dear Baltimore, let's talk about your strength. Let's talk about how you rise. When everybody thinks you're down for the count, let's talk about how you rise. Rise like that time my brother was on crack and my parents would search the streets looking for him. And sometimes he would run. But that one time, one time I found him and he almost ran. And I begged him not to. And I reminded him that I'd been at my bottom too. That I'd seen the crevices of my gutter too. And having come up out of it, there was no way I was going to leave him. Rise like how he promised me he would meet me later that afternoon and let me take him to our parents. Rise like how I promised him I'd be standing on that corner until he returned. And he left to go get that last hit. Rise like the joy in my soul when I saw his frail, cracked, devoured body coming over the hill to let his sister take him home.
So rise like that time I realized that I actually love having one hand. And I learned to kiss my nub every single day. Rise like the glimmer of excitement in children's eyes when somebody opens the fire hydrant on a hot summer day. I'm saying it like it's easy when I know it's hard. When I know what's been done to you. When I know how they still neglect you. But I know you. You made me. I know that it looks so dark all around you. Open your eyes anyway. They are the lamps in the darkness. Your vision can shine away the dark corners around you. Of you. In you. Healing you. Rise like that time I sat down to write you this letter. Whether you feel like it or not. Feel worthy or not. Broken or whole. Rise to your soul's calling. Yearning. Knowing. Knowing that you are not other people's perception of you. With your name on their lips and your greatness far from their understanding. Rise because you know only you can save you. Rise like that time we spent a week singing, dancing, and praying at North and Penn. With cameras all around waiting for us to blow up again. All the while we were strategizing how to know us within. Rise like that time since 2014 we had 11 and a half days of no murder. Rise like the people who convinced each other not to break that streak. See, you are worth standing in the gap for, going to war for, demanding peace for. Let's talk about your strength. Let's talk about your resilience. Let's talk about how you rise time and time again. Dear Baltimore, not only do you have rise in you, rise is you. Justice has a new home in your pocket or purse on your smartphone or tablet. Introducing the WPFW app. How does it work? Visit the iOS or Android app store and download. That's all. How will WPFW's app help me? All access, all the time. Live stream your favorite shows, follow social media posts, and listen to all our podcast episodes wrapped together into one user-friendly feed. Hey, that's not too bad. So what's stopping you? Nothing. 